to this episode of Working Life, the podcast dedicated to telling the inspiring stories of amazing people in the charity and not-for-profit sector. I'm Jael Woolley. And I'm Victoria Dillon. And we are the co-founders and directors of The Talent Set, the marketing recruitment experts. And together, we are your hosts on the show. Today, we are joined by Tanya Whitehead from TalentWise Consulting, who has come to talk to us about diversity and inclusion in the charity and not-for-profit sectors. We're specifically going to be looking at how to run inclusive recruitment processes with the aim to attracting and recruiting diverse teams. So thank you very much for joining us, Tanya, and welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We're really thrilled to have you, Tanya. Thank you so much. Tell our listeners like about yourself. So if I maybe start and tell you how I've got to where I am today. Um, so I started my career in creative media. I had some standalone HR roles reporting into MDs and COOs, and that gave me a huge breadth of experience and a steep learning curve. Then I moved on and worked at Saatchi and Saatchi, the advertising agency. I had about two and a half years there and I worked my way up to lead the HR team. And then I had a quite a sector change and went over to the charity sector, which of course you know so well. Um, and I started working for Great Ormond Street Children's Charity. I was there for nearly four years in a strategic senior HR role, um, supporting marketing and public fundraising, corporate partnerships and comms. Um, so um, a nice breadth of people there across fundraising and not, but still with that kind of media creative feel that I'd been used to but then after going into lockdown six months into my maternity leave I was due to go back to work in September last year uh, just as things had started to open up and we could get out and do some more and then my daughter was one by then but I decided to take some more time out to spend with my daughter and explore a flexible approach to work so then what started off as a few small freelance part-time HR um, sort of training gigs, they became a great business opportunity. And that's where I decided to launch TalentWise Consulting. And so with TalentWise, I support um, businesses across both the private and the not-for-profit sector on a range of HR topics. And my areas of specialism have quickly come through as learning and development, diversity, employer engagement and recruitment and employer branding. And throughout my career, I've also focused on developing myself. So I get as much experience as I can and get as much expertise as I can. So to support all of this work experience, I've also got an undergraduate degree in law, a master's in HR, I'm CIPD accredited, and I'm an accredited Myers-Briggs facilitator. I'm also a trained executive coach and I'm working on completing a portfolio to get me accredited in coaching. Um, so that is a kind of how I've got here and the things that I've done to support me in getting here today. Gosh, that's so exciting and the talent wise obviously you're very busy. What are your kind of plans with talent wise for the future? So I'm I guess I've got a really interesting opportunity and I can be quite broad with what I do and I, I'm really kind of um, clear with my clients about the breadth of services I can offer. So I do things around learning and development, employer branding, recruitment. That's where diversity comes in um, through the recruitment work I do with them, which is more strategic in employer branding rather than delivery of recruitment. Um, and I also do things like psychometric profiling and team development workshops. Um, and I'm actually at a really exciting time where I might be able, thinking about expanding, bringing in some more people into my team to allow me to help my clients in more ways because I'm really fortunate to be uh, 
sort of full, I guess, in terms of the work I'm doing and what I'm delivering on for clients. So I'd love to be able to support them in more ways. Um, but there's only so much I can do at the minute. But we're growing um, and it's exciting. And I'm not surprised yep. you're busy. You know, how wonderful to have that mixed background of Saatchi and Saatchi and, and Great Ormond Street Children's Charity. You know, the certainly a, a unique background and will be really interesting throughout the podcast to see, you know, your different perspectives from the private and the charity sector. Um, but just before we, you know, start to look at and diversity and inclusion in the charity and not-for-profit sector in more detail, I'm often asked about the terms and the language we use when we're talking about diversity and inclusion. So I thought it would be helpful to start by asking you exactly what we mean when we're talking about diversity and, and building diverse teams. Yes, I think that's a really, really good question um, because there's not necessarily clear definitions of it. But my take on what these words mean is I would say that Diversity really recognises that though people have things in common with each other, they're also different in many different in many ways. And so diversity is any dimension that can be used to differentiate a group of people. So it's things like race, gender, ability and disability, um, things that we're used to and are protected in law. But it can also go broader than that. And it can look at things like diversity in thought and approach to work in experience and skills and socioeconomic status. So that's what diversity means. But when we talk about diversity, diversity it's also important to remember intersectionality and that's how things like race gender and other individual characteristics overlap or they intersect with one another and so simply put we're not just one identity so when we think about diversity I think it's important not to think about people as sort of siloed bubbles of a certain characteristic but I think we're a whole person and different elements of our identity make up um, the diversity that we offer so I think that's important as well building on diverse, diversity, you have inclusion, and that's where those differences are seen as a benefit and where perspectives and differences are shared and they lead to better decisions and a sense of belonging. And then I think you have equality, and that means equal rights and opportunities afforded for all. But equality um, isn't as perfect as that sounds, but that's where I think equity is a better term because equity recognises that treating people equally has some shortcomings because the playing field isn't level to begin with for everyone. So as an equity approach emphasises that everyone shouldn't be treated the same, so they shouldn't be treated equally, but instead they should be treated according to their own needs and their own situation. And that's where I think equity is, um, gets people to think a bit differently in the diversity space. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that's really, really useful point. Um, and, and especially around, you know, the breadth of what diversity can mean, because I think quite often a lot of people use the word diversity when they're talking about race or ethnicity. But actually, it's much more than that. And I, I was reading a study yesterday, actually, that showed that in the charity sector, 40% of candidates surveyed felt that they had been discriminated by age. Um, so, you know, perhaps one that isn't talked about so much, but 40% is obviously a much higher percentage than perhaps what I would have expected it to be and, and really quite worrying. So I think having that explained in, in that much detail is very helpful. Thank you. Also to say that in the charity sector recently, there has been a lot of press about how far behind the sector is when comparing to the public sector and the private sector in terms of the diversity at senior levels and actually throughout um, throughout all levels. So what, why do you think the charity sector does seem to be that little bit behind 
than the other sectors? So I think that we're at a really interesting time at the minute. I think we're finally in a place where pretty much everyone agrees that there's change needed in a lot of areas that touch on diversity. Um, And events of the recent kind of years or months have really highlighted that there's inequalities faced by many different groups. But I think there's a perception that I think charities should perhaps be more progressive than other sectors and they should do more um, and I think some of that is because they're committed to improving people's lives outcomes and they often promote justice and equality so they have these really positive social causes at their um, at their core and their objectives and what they're trying to achieve um, and having such a positive ethos can seem at odds to some of the lived experience of people within the charity so your example there Victoria about people feeling that they've faced age discrimination if you imagine the amount of charities that support um, older people for example, that would feel quite at odds with um, what they're trying Mm. to achieve. I think also when you hear about it, there's other things you can hear. So there's an an Acevo report recently that found that 68% of respondents had experienced, witnessed or heard about racism in their time in the sector. Um, And despite the fact that women make up 68% of the charity workforce, only 40% of chief execs are women um, and only 54% of senior leaders are women. So there's that disparity that despite there being so many women in the sector, they're not reaching the higher levels. Um, And then you've also got these kind of grassroots root campaigns and groups within the sector like the charity so white show the salary and non-grads welcome hashtags they're really telling us from within that there's more charities could be doing to be more inclusive but sometimes i think that there is a not an undue spotlight i think that's not the right way of saying it but i would say they they certain are they're sort of put on a pedestal, perhaps charities, because they tend to be there for good. You expect more of them than you would perhaps a big private corporation that people might tolerate um, things a little bit more from them or accept that because they're after profit, they're maybe not going to be focused as much on social outcomes and diversity, whereas charities don't um, have that same acceptance. You expect them to do more. But I also think there are some challenges that charities have, fo- um, have faced. So organisations like charities have to operate within the realms of our society already where there are significant inequalities and societal norms that create problems with diversity so charities aren't responsible for the general society that we live in unfortunately has got big rooms for change already but despite this charities are expected to do more than other organisations and that's perhaps due to this perception that they're there for good But when it comes to a recruitment standpoint, I actually wonder whether charities face an information gap. So is there a certain type of person that gets exposed to the charity sector as a potential career from early on? That means that the actual kind of pool when it comes to recruitment of candidates in the charity sector is narrower than other sectors. A lot of people don't know that you can actually um, have a paid employment job within the charity sector, for example. A lot of people think it's just voluntary. So I think that then, therefore, the charity sector is already operating from a limited talent pool that isn't as diverse as some of the other sectors so that's only going to perpetuate a lack of diversity or inclusion within the organizations because they're sort of the hands are tied behind their back as such when they begin when they start off with um so i think there's that's that's something i've um just sort of pondered on there's nothing i have to necessarily base that on but it's always something i've i've been intrigued by and thought about Yes, and and for a long time there was, you know, the introduction of internships wasn't there that were unpaid, whereas, you know, now internships, you know, best practice is to ensure that they are, um, you know, a paid placement. So there there definitely has been some change and the show the salary and the non-grads welcome, you know, particularly 
aimed at recruitment, you know, there's definitely been some some step forwards. But at the same time, you know, diversity has been, you know, a priority for the sector for quite a long time now. And whilst there has been some progress, it, it hasn't changed hugely when looking at the statistics. So do, do you have any thoughts as to why that might be? I do yes and I would agree with you that there has been some change absolutely so for example the rate of women in charity leadership is increasing and we've had appointments of women of colour to senior charity positions that maybe we hadn't seen for um, a really long time so it's good that that's moving in the direction but I agree that perhaps the problem has been around the pace of change it's not been as quick as people would want to see. I think, though, some of that is to do with the governance of charities. And when I compare it to my experience of the private sector and how we operated, particularly when it came to the speed of making a decision, I think that charities perhaps can be um, hindered a little bit because of their governance. And there's no fault of their own. That's because of the trustee structure, the regulations and the laws that are there. But that doesn't tend to come with speed. So like trustee models with quarterly board meetings and committee meetings, papers and reports, that doesn't make things happen quickly it takes a long time to propose something to research it to decide on it and I think that that naturally means that work you might want to do all the good people within charity that are desperate to make change happen they can't do it as quickly as they'd like to to build on that energy on top of this then the sector has had a number of changing regulations and often at times has come under great public scrutiny um, and of course it was significantly affected as many sectors were through the through covid and lockdowns and they rightly so had to um, react to that quite quickly which would have taken a lot of time for them so i can imagine with all of that a lot of really good intentions and ideas have perhaps not been implemented as quickly as even the charities themselves would have liked to have seen and I think a lot of that sadly is out of their um, control because of the climate they operate in Um, but that's that's what I think is um, where the charity compares differently to the private sector that perhaps can be a bit quicker they're not regulated as heavily when it comes to governance and decision making so if they want to try something out they can normally do so quite quickly and they don't necessarily have the same public scrutiny um, as charities do Uh, uh, we've all seen some of the headlines that people like to write about charities and I think that can potentially make them a bit risk averse they want to get everything really just right before they implement things whereas I think private sector doesn't need to potentially be limited that much. Yes you're right it's quite a unique sort of management structure isn't it the the sort of trustee board and actually one of the um, latest researches done by the charity commission shows that actually only eight percent of trustees are non-white you know, and when you take that in comparison to sort of the UK population, you know, 14% of that population is is non-white. So there's also a lot of work to be done in creating sort of diversity at that trustee level as well. And a lot of talk around trustee boards needing to represent their beneficiaries. Um, you know, and, and you mentioned lived experience, you know, that's certainly been something we're hearing about a lot more over, you know, even the last year. And so, yes, I I can see why that sort of management structure could definitely slow things down. I think the beneficiaries point is really interesting because we're speaking to clients who who are trying to increase their, you know, they're, you know, they're a children's charity and they don't have representation internally with their employees um, who who may be directly affected as a beneficiary in the organisation. I think it's, you know, really interesting. 
So bringing it back to recruitment, why do you think, Tanya, that recruitment is such a critical part of a charity's ED&I policy? So I think that there has rightly been a lot of emphasis on inclusion and a lot of organisations are doing really useful and really hard work on tackling things like microaggressions and institutional practices that can make their culture a bit less inclusive. And I think it's absolutely right that they are looking at that. But I do think that recruitment needs to be part of that work that they're doing on diversity. And especially when we're in a time of significant opportunity. So job vacancies are at the highest they've ever been so if you're not looking at recruitment and your inclusive practices that could really set you back because of the opportunity we're in at the minute so I think mm. recruitment represents a chance to bring diverse a diverse range of people into the organization and therefore it can contribute in a more organic way to diversity aims now it absolutely shouldn't be done in isolation and it should be then looking at how ways to support people once they're within the organization so through a lot of the um, inclusivity workshops that people are doing is absolutely right but if you're not looking at ways to bring in more diverse people in the first place there's only so much change you're going to be able to make within the organisation. So exactly your point, Victoria, about um, non-white trustees, for example, if you're looking at recruitment of trustees in a really inclusive way, that can help you with decision making and broader strategy and approach later on, um, because you have that diversity of lived experience and thought. But if you're not looking at your recruitment inclusively, then I don't see how much could change. And so I think it's a really important part. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a balance between both, really, isn't it? So tell us, um, what does an equal and inclusive recruitment process actually mean for for the benefit of our listeners? So I think an inclusive uh, recruitment process is one that is equitable. Um, So it's where the best person gets the job because the playing field was levelled to give them an equal chance to shine. It's absolutely not about treating people the same. So I'd actually say it's not about equality. So that's where that difference between equality and equity comes in. And it should be taking active steps to eliminate bias, which is often unconscious. So a lot of people have heard about unconscious bias. Um, So some of this, um, should I go into some of the specifics? Yes, please, please do. Yes, definitely. We're really keen to hear all about it. Can I just touch on something just first, sorry, just to to bring up that point you've made there around levelling the playing field. And I think it's just a really important point to highlight that this is just ensuring that there isn't positive discrimination at the same time. It is about that levelling of the play field and giving everyone that equal chance to shine, as you put it, Tanya. And I think it's very important that there isn't discrimination, whether it's positive or otherwise, it's about creating that sort of level playing field. So just to, to pop that part in there. Yes, absolutely. So positive discrimination is a, is a really... Um, sort of particular term and it's quite it's quite heavily regulated in law and what you can and can't do with that so I think it's best you're right but I think people are nervous about it but I think you're absolutely right the best way to think about it is around leveling the playing field so it's recognizing that not everyone is starting from the same equal position and some people are kind of held back in that so if you think of ways to make everyone start from an equal footing that's what we're looking at here when it comes to recruitment we're not looking at giving anyone an advantage over anyone else we're just trying to make sure that things were people might have been traditionally disadvantaged can be evened out to give them the best chance to get the job because they've performed to their best. Let's take it back to talking about what in your 
opinion sort of an inclusive recruitment process involves? Uh, I think it starts with candidate attraction. So I think it starts by having a sort of an employer brand and a recruitment language that makes diverse candidates feel welcome. And it's ensuring that job adverts don't include any discriminatory language as well. I think that's really important when it comes to candidate attraction. Um, And then that leads you to have a wider candidate pool that you're talking to. So you're looking beyond the traditional type of candidate to reach new types of people. So a classic example for that, I guess, with the not-for-profit sector um, would be looking at people who don't just have not-for-profit experience, but looking outside of the sector. So you're attracting this wider pool. And Conscious bias often leads people to recruit in their own image. So having a wider, diverse talent pool helps combat that as well, because you're not just um, you're providing them with a wider pool of people to meet and experience and to see who could do the job rather than just having the same types of people coming forward for jobs. I think once you've then got that great language, you've attracted more people, you've got a wider talent pool to pull from, it then comes into sort of the screening and interview process and eliminating bias as much as possible through that. Um, And that can be unconscious bias in particular. So having things like joint hiring and selection panels can really help blind CVs, standardised assessment criteria um, and assessments that focus on skill and ability to do the role, not other factors. Um, I might just expand on that a little bit because I think that that assessment piece is quite interesting because I often find that certainly in my experience recruitment practices were just set quite standard in organizations so for example you do a presentation at the second round but often people didn't need to present in the job that they would be doing so that wasn't really assessing the criteria to do the job so I think just really testing the process and making sure it's as um, true to the skills and experiences you need people to have in the job rather than just it being about the process itself is important because then you're making sure that it's inclusive and someone isn't held back just because they can't perform a certain way in the interview process but actually that would have no relevance on whether they could do the job or not and then finally I think that there's things you can do particularly interview to make a a recruitment process inclusive so I think thinking about the environment and the location um, and how that might affect certain people so for example even things like um cost to travel to an interview in person that might have an effect on someone um, from a different socioeconomic background but also things like having informal meetings in a coffee shop could be quite hard for someone who is neurodivergent who might have a bit of sensory overload in that kind of environment as well so just thinking how can I make this the most inclusive process for them in terms of the environment so no one's held back and then thinking about the format of tasks and preparation to support inclusivity Um, so asking people what they need to make the process inclusive is the easiest way to do that so rather than having to guess and think oh is this going to be hinder this person is this not as inclusive I say the easiest thing is just to ask say what would make this an inclusive process for you what can we do differently and that's a really nice conversation to have with someone it's really positive and it allows them to share with you um, what might make it a more inclusive process for them I think there's some real practical um, tips there thank you Tanya I think there's some really practical actions that hopefully our listeners can go away and, and really think about and introduce if they're not um, not doing already and I, I think that point at the bottom about just asking people what they need you know it sounds so simple but actually when we do ask our candidates they're they're all almost a little bit taken aback because it isn't something that they get asked regularly and and doesn't 
often come up. You know, if people need need changes, they normally have to be proactive and might not necessarily feel so comfortable about it. So it, it sounds very simple, but it does make a really, really big difference um, to people's experience. So thank you for that. It's really, really practical. And I guess just sort of flipping it to look at it a slightly different way. You know, what, what, what can go wrong? What would definitely sort of undermine a sort of inclusive recruitment process? So I think there is where I guess individuals um, can affect a, a general process. So I think if um, certain hiring managers aren't either aligned or educated in the diversity aims of the organisation, or perhaps they're not very experienced in recruitment, um, then they might deviate from best practice and from what the organisation is trying to achieve um, on a global scale with what their um, strategies and policies are. You get individual difference with hiring manager, then that can detract from that so it might mean that um you've got this great process on paper but if your hiring managers aren't trained to follow it and support it to implement it because some of this is um it it's deviating from the way recruitment might have been traditionally done and how they've experienced it themselves so if you're asking them to uh, make adaptations for people and to support them on an individual level you're going to need to train and support them in that and what they can and can't do um, so if you haven't done that then that could really take away with what you're trying to do so I think it's making sure that there's consistency with how your hiring managers are implementing these processes that you've put together I could also see there being a bit of a risk if there's an urgent role and that could also be where you've outsourced recruitment to a recruiter to help do it um, for you to make it quicker and what could happen there is that your inclusive recruitment process could go a bit out the window and so you're not following all these things you want to do you're not making the adjustments you're not having those joint hiring panels because you're perhaps trying to rush it through or you're not controlling every element of the process because some of it has been outsourced to this um, recruitment partner to do it on your behalf so in those situations at best it can mean the candidates not having as good an experience as you'd like so they're not feeling as um, included or as welcome as you'd like them to be but at worst it could mean that you've actually made an unfair hiring decision because your process hasn't been as fair as it could be so I think there is a real potential to things to go quite wrong and detract from all the good work you're trying to do by coming up with policies and processes you've just got to make sure it's consistently applied and that people are trained and supported and that if you're outsourcing it those partners you're using to outsource certain bits of it uh, are on board and they they're doing it in the way you want them to yeah that's such an interesting way of looking at it isn't it that if the inclusive processes fall down that actually you you, you could end up having an unfair um, process which you know in in some ways is I guess a little bit more hard-hitting way to look at it um, because hopefully there's no one out there that would would want to make an unfair um, process. So I, I, th I think that's a very interesting way of, of sort of turning it on its head. Um, you mentioned outsourcing to recruiters. Obviously, we are a recruitment agency. We work with lots of clients. And as we are particularly passionate about diversity and inclusion, it's always high on our agenda. Um, but what tips have you got for sort of charities or organisations that perhaps haven't worked with a DNI specialist recruiter about how their sort of recruitment partners can support them um, to, to run, I guess, those inclusive processes? 
So I think that's a really, really important point, because when you use a recruiter, so much of the process is out of your hands and it can drastically affect how inclusive that process then becomes. Um, So I do think it's really important that charities work with a recruitment partner like yourselves, who are really passionate and educated about diversity, who have done a lot of hard work in bettering themselves and their processes in this field. And they want to make processes more inclusive for their candidates and clients, because then they are going to be passionate about the work that they're doing and they're not just going to be there uh, to sort of um, just bring in income they want to make sure that the actual process is inclusive as well so I actually think thinking carefully about the partners you use in the first place is important but then I think what you want to do is really build trust with them you want them to you want to be able to trust them with your employer brand um, and make sure that they are going out to a diverse candidate and trust that when they are screening cvs for you and presenting them back to you they're doing it in a non-biased way and so um, ask them how um, what processes have they got to ensure that these things are done fairly and that they're combating any of their own unconscious bias that might come through Um, so i think being really open to them that those are important factors to you so you can have that conversation in the first place I then think that once you've built up that relationship of trust um, and you know that they're there not just to make a placement um, but they're actually there to make the process inclusive and to support your aims when it comes to diversity and inclusion once you have that trusting relationship they can act as what I call a critical friend and what I mean there is they can really um, support you with your diversity aims by being compassionate but assertive and holding you to account on things like your recruitment practices and making sure they're truly inclusive so for example if you're rushing because it's a really urgent role which tends to be one of the reasons you might have outsourced a recruitment partner and you're sort of going oh I'll just meet them myself and then we'll go through they can actually be really um, supportive but they can question you there and be like are you sure that's going to be the most inclusive process perhaps you should involve someone else in that hiring decision with you or can we just have a little think about that task you've set them I'm not sure that this is the best way to assess the skills you need for the job so actually having a recruiter that um, you've built that relationship up with and you trust to bring those things to you is really powerful um, because then they're going to help you be truly inclusive diversity work isn't easy and it isn't comfortable and but it needs to be done so I think it's important that you are working with suppliers that you can trust that you know have done some hard work themselves and that they're supporting you and your journey as well because they're on their own journey and you can work collaboratively together so I think it's really important to think about who you're working with asking them what they've done in terms of diversity and how they can support you with your aims and also giving them I guess permission to question you to make sure that you're being the best you can be and that your process is the best it could possibly be. I think that's so interesting because it's like the recruiter becomes sort of part of the organization. So it really is a real benefit to everyone if they're sort of, if we're as an agency, for example, onboarded correctly, we're fully immersed in the recruitment process and that we recruit on an ongoing basis for them because, you know, then the client would obviously trust us to implement their process in the most inclusive way possible. Absolutely. I think one of the biggest benefits we've seen um, from clients we've worked with who have particular diversity and inclusion aims has actually been that part around the questioning that you've highlighted there, Tanya. 
And so for a lot of organisations who have recruited in exactly the same way for goodness knows how many years and, you know, recruited the same position numerous times with the same job description, the same adverts, you know, having a fresh pair of eyes come in and really ask them around, you know, are the essential criteria still essential? And, you know, is this the best process to attract, you know, a diverse range of candidates? And really asking why they do things that could um, ultimately risk the level of inclusion of the process. And I, I think that the feedback we've had is actually just by asking a few of those sort of key or more sort of challenging questions that the clients have come back and said, actually, it's completely changed how they're going to approach a particular role or, you know, what process they're going to go through. So I think I think that sort of questioning or, or sort of critical friend, as you put it, has um, has received some really excellent feedback from our clients. Yeah, we're doing it a lot more than we ever have before is making recommendations on things like, you know, job job descriptions and, and adverts, you know, and it seems like, you know, the job of a recruiter normally is just to get the candidates in front of the client, but actually it starts way before then. And our clients are asking a lot at the moment for our help with that. I, I think that's really good to hear because when I was um, in in-house HR roles, when I worked with recruiters, I would have been delighted to have that kind of service because I would have seen you guys as the experts in your field. And although I would have done recruitment as part of my, it was one element of my role, but you're doing recruitment all day, every day. You're the experts, you know what there is to do. And so I think it's brilliant that you are doing that with your clients. I think that I think I I would have liked that had I have been <laughs> in-house and been working with you. So I'm, sh- I'm not surprised oh, that you've had good stuff from your clients about that and um, so how can you tell if if your recruitment process is fully like inclusive so I think that's an easy one I think you ask you ask okay. people if it's inclusive so both throughout and and uh, so at the start and throughout the process, just ask them how can we make this process inclusive for you? Uh, what else could we be doing to make you perform at your best? Do you know at the end, ask them how they found it um, because. Because when you go back to what we talked about, about equity and about treating people not the same, but in line with their individual needs, you can never guess what people might need to make a process more inclusive. There'll be some general things you can think about, but then just asking people whether it's been inclusive or what more you could do. So if you're asking them throughout the process, you have an opportunity to change something and then you could fix it and make it more inclusive for them rather than just waiting for it at the end. But you can still learn from stuff at the end as well. Um, So I think asking people... um, is the key but I also think there's something about measurement so people often say Mm. you can't you can't change what you don't measure Uh, so I suggest measuring diversity stats um, but doing this throughout the process so often I find people um, like you have an applicant tracking system when you apply that captures diversity data then and then you capture it for the business once someone's in but you don't necessarily see the journey throughout and where there might be some challenges and you might be losing some more diverse candidates perhaps say at interview stage they might not be progressing on so that would be really interesting to make sure that you're keeping up your diversity monitoring throughout a process so you can assess and see if there's maybe any chinks in that process that you could address that perhaps aren't being as inclusive it lets you kind of pinpoint where to look to make it even better. Yes, you're right. Lots of people take the sort of measurement at, right at the beginning with the applications maybe and then right at the end, but not throughout. That's that's really interesting. 
So once you've got your inclusive processes running, what's next? Once we've sort of attracted a diverse workforce, what's the next steps? So I see there being two sides of this. I think the first side is around the work you do to create an inclusive work environment. So people um, are engaged, they you retain them, they stay with you because um, if you haven't traditionally had um, that diverse a workforce you've got to remember there might be things going on within the business that might not be letting that person perform to their best um so thinking doing some work internally and that's not my area of expertise i think there's a lot of really good people out there who've got a lot more experience than me and what you can do in that area um so i won't talk to that but there is definitely a a work to be done there that I think organisations need to look into and think about how to make just the environments more inclusive. But what I do think you can do is once you have been attracting a more more diverse workforce, um, you then have something to authentically talk about. You you can go back out to um, candidates and you can explain, look, this is what we've done to make a process more inclusive. You've gathered that feedback because you've been asking people throughout. You might have some nice qualitative or quantitative data to show there about where people have found your process really inclusive. You could then use that to even attract a wider talent pool that's even more diverse because you're saying to them, look, actually, we care. We're on a journey. We're working on it and we're, we can show that our processes are inclusive. That's going to make candidates want to come to you they're going to think well that's a really good sign that's the kind of organization I want to be part of Um, so when you show people what you've done to make a process more inclusive and you acknowledge where you are in the journey so often I'd be saying to people don't go out and act like you're done now you've completed diversity recruitment big tick I think it's always going to be a journey there's always going to be more you can do and you're going to need to keep up the standards particularly when there's pressure points like high recruitment volumes or sector challenges making sure that you're consistent with that is important but if you're telling people look we're on the journey we're doing it I think you're actually going to be more likely um, and it's going to be more effective to attract a diverse workforce than just for example publishing a a generic EDI strategy that you've written I think really bringing it to life with stories and individual um, experiences is going to really help you to attract talent so I think that's something that your recruitment journey can really help then it sort of is it's like a snowball effect it just gets better and better. Yeah, I really, really like that point, especially about how candidates are going to be interested in those organisations which do provide those inclusive processes. Um, One of the leading job boards actually did a a survey recently that showed ED&I strategies were now um, important to two thirds of candidates when they choose whether to apply to an organisation or not. And I only think that's going to go up. So your point about, you know, sharing that with the market around, you know, you might not be perfect, but this is what you're trying to do and you're asking for feedback. It is actually going to really impact who wants to work for you and who wants to apply. Oh, yeah, very good point. And I think telling the stories, it just like humanizes it as well, doesn't it? When you, you tell the stories of maybe what you've done before, I think is a really powerful way of showing of like showing it I think I, I I'd agree there because I think they're really powerful and you think about when you talk about stories of an individual it really brings at home what a difference an inclusive process can make so someone telling you that actually they don't think they would have been able to get the job 
if you hadn't have adapted a process for them how like how just rewarding is that to hear and to think actually that's brilliant we've now got the best candidate and we wouldn't have got them had we not have tweaked our process to make it more inclusive for them I think that's really rewarding and that's it's it's a nice thing to reflect on and capture and it's a brilliant thing to say look we're not just going to stick to those same old processes and job descriptions that we've always had because actually it makes us better it means we get even we get better people who can come and work for us because we've changed a bit and I think that's a really nice thing to just capture reflect and share with other people it's really rewarding yeah absolutely and sometimes interview processes can be quite unnatural because you're sort of under pressure and that's not necessarily what you would necessarily be doing in the job day to day you know being under that much pressure or you know that's just an example but um yes I agree so um Tanya tell us how you as talent wise and us as the talent set names go quite well together <laughs> um, how we can help clients going forwards like if they get in touch I'm sure we're going to have a uh, lots of sort of inquiries how how do you think we can help help people so from my perspective I'm always really clear with my clients that I'm not uh, a diversity and inclusion specialist um, what I offer is broader than that um, but because of that I don't have the real kind of in-depth full-on inclusive for example how I, I couldn't share about the what to do when you've got people in to be inclusive so I just want to be really open with people about that but what I do hopefully bring to my clients is a high level of diversity knowledge that I can combine with buckets of practical solution focused insights to put things into practice within a recruitment space so because I'm a really experienced trainer and workshop facilitator I focus on things like action learning and coaching techniques to kind of bring it all to life to empower people and therefore organisations to find out the answers and to think of things that are going to work for them. So they come away kind of understanding loads of options available to them when it comes to inclusive recruitment and how they can specifically move forward in a way that suits their organisation and move forward their diversity agenda in a real practical way, rather than just focusing on maybe all the things they've been doing wrong, making them feel quite overwhelmed, that there's quite a lot of work to be doing. I kind of let them feel, no, actually, look, what are the steps you can take? So that's what I focus on. So I do that through a workshop I run that uses group coaching methodology to kind of bring all of this diversity together and it helps attendees come away with a list of practical actions that make them feel empowered to make a difference but then I can also help on a practical level for them in a more tactical way so I can review and create an inclusive recruitment strategy for them have a look at their processes perhaps support them with that kind of critical friend mindset that we talked about and I can tailor um, anything that we do design to that organisation and their specific diversity aims and then I tie it all together with things like employer branding materials but diversity recruitment is just one string to my bow and at TalentWise Consulting we can support on a range of learning and development initiatives and HR projects including things like psychometric profiling, team development workshops, engagement surveys and all of those things together can contribute to a more inclusive workforce so if they if potentially a client wanted to they could start off with the recruitment work with me from a strategic level and then there might be some other things I could support them on as time goes on that could help them um, so that's what I could do and I would happily recommend Tanya you know as um, having attended one of her workshops and had some coaching sessions with her I would highly recommend her um, for anybody who needs you know generalist HR support or um, diverse in recruitment strategies 
Tanya's Thank actually you. no, you're, you're, it's it's earned, and actually Tanya's really helped us um, to ensure that we have minimised unconscious bias at all stages of our recruitment process, and has helped us devise what we feel is the most inclusive process that we can for our candidates. And actually, she's also, um, you know, led to us having a more strategic focus with our clients on how they can improve their recruitment processes. So it's inclusion for the candidates, but also, you know, helping our clients really attract those more diverse teams. Um, and a lot of that came from from Tanya's workshop and, and also our experience, what, over the last 15 yeah. years, is it, Jai? Yeah, I know. <laughs> no, I really long you. time. But it will also be a long-term partnership, I think, because um, you know I'm, I'm sure we'll uh, you know we'll need um, we'll need you more, um, Tanya. I'm sure. Thank we you. We hope well, to yeah build long-term relationships with um, talent-wise, definitely. That's really yeah. I'd be I'd be delighted to keep working with you on that and keep because um, I think we we seem to work well together. We're learning from each other, and it's great that we can kind of support. Um, both businesses to then support each other's clients as well I think it feels like a really nice partnership and I love how dedicated you are to improving in this space and you're on that journey and you're learning and I think that's really commendable because we talked about it it's hard work it's uncomfortable but it's great that you guys are doing that because I don't think um, all recruiters are um, and I think it's really nice that you are doing that and I think it's really important as well. Oh thanks Tanya. Yeah, thank you for your time. That's been great. And, and if anybody does want to get in touch, we're going to put um, the contact details on the details with the podcast. So if anyone wants to get in touch with Tanya directly or get in touch with us, all of the details will be on there. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.